Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Lubaina Himid. The new museum in New York is presenting Lubaina Himid Work from Underneath. It's up through October 6th. The show is Himid's first solo museum exhibition in the United States. Himid was a pioneer of the British black arts movement of the 1980s and 90s. Her work has consistently examined the consequences of colonialism while celebrating the African diaspora, all while making use of the art historical constructs devised by the cultures she critiques. The exhibition was curated by Natalie Bell. The new museum published an excellent catalog for the show. Amazon offers it for just 17 bucks. Yes, just 17 bucks. You should go get it right now. There's a link on manpodcast.com. Himid's work has been the subject of recent solo shows at the Baltic Center for Contemporary Art and the Platt Hall Museum of Costume at the Manchester Galleries. She was included in the 2018 Berlin Biennale, and her work is well held by the Tate Britain, which has a really cool website devoted to her work. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. And as you probably know, Himid won the 2017 Turner Prize. On the second segment, we'll have Sheila Pepe. couple quick things before we move on. First, I'm delighted to announce that this fall, the Modern Art Notes podcast is returning to the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth for a live audience taping with Robin O'Neill. The date will be Tuesday, October 15th. That week, the Modern opens a 20-year survey of O'Neill's work titled Robin O'Neill, We the Masses. Mark your calendars now. I cannot wait. We'll have another live show announcement coming soon. Next, and quickly... Please rate and review us wherever you download the show. The algorithms, they must be fed. Lubaina Himid, after the break. Celebrate art, wine, and culture this summer by signing up for Bacchus Uncorked. Three Saturday evening programs at the Getty Villa, July 13th, July 27th, and August 3rd. Enjoy presentations on Roman culture and wine. Then taste Italian wines while taking in the villa's stunning architecture and gardens. Learn more and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Sarah Lucas Au Naturel, the first American survey of one of the UK's most influential artists. Featuring some of Lucas's most important projects alongside new sculptural works created for the exhibition, Au Naturel offers a rare chance to see more than 130 works in photography, collage, sculpture, and installation that have never been shown together in the United States. Sarah Lucas Au Naturel is on view June 9th through September 1st at the Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. This summer at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, see Barbara Hammer in this body world premiere exhibition that captures the full scope of work by the pioneering artist and LGBT cinema icon. Cecilia Vicuña, Lo Precario, The Precarious, a collection of more than 50 of the Chilean-born artists' lyrical, intimately scaled sculptures, and Jason Moran, the first museum exhibition of visual art by the world-renowned jazz musician and composer. They're all on view at the WEX June 1st through August 11th, along with a site-specific mural by Alicia McCarthy, which is on view through August 1st. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Lubaina Hamid, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. In your Q&A with new museum curator Natalie Bell in the catalog, and really in, in many other Q&As you've done in recent years, you talk about how at the outset of your career you thought of yourself as, among other things, a political activist, an exhibition organizer, and somewhere along the line always mentions that you trained as a theater designer. Was that just training or did you work as a theater designer? It was more or less 
just training. I spent, you know, the usual kind of three years in in Britain doing a BA in, in theatre design. And, you know, I got to the end of it and I think they thought I was pretty hopeless. So, and I, in some senses I was in that I hadn't ever made any attempt to make any connections. You know, I spent the whole three years listening to operas, looking at ballets, reading plays, making costumes, looking at, you know, architecture, uh, making sets, actually getting myself incredibly involved in the business of being an artist within the theatre kind of thing. And I sort of forgot that you were supposed to do an awful lot of schmoozing. And I, I, there wasn't any training for that, so I didn't do it. So I arrived at the other end of the course with a kind of pretty mediocre sort of degree. And I didn't know quite what to do. You know, I, I was completely untrained in that sort of way. But I, I worked for a while at the Royal Opera House, just doing a bit of making of costumes for just for a small while. And then I worked as a designer, but with a very, very small company who, you know, we would be doing plays in uh, upstairs from uh, pubs or in community center sort of places. We'd maybe do three performances and then we'd go on, chuck the stuff back in a van, do it somewhere else. And then maybe a few weeks later, we devise something else and, and do it again. So in a sense, that was the kind of theatre that I wanted to do, but I wasn't making any money at all, and, and I was waiting in a kind of full-time way most of the time. So I never really reached any kind of resolution with that. And so I think from that moment on, I thought that it might be just easier, which of course it wasn't, but I think I thought it might be easier to get across more of my ideas in, an, in a sort of art context than a theatre context, really. So to my eye, there is a lot of that experience in your painting. Do you agree? Was that intentional? Yes. I mean, what I learned, I mean, learned a lot of things, you know, from that course and a lot of things from the people I met there. And, a lot of, and you know, if you're studying theatre, then you're in the theatre a lot of the time. And I absolutely understood that in performance, audience is key. You, you can you can do the play, you can do the, the ballet or the opera, and it works from beginning to end. But if you don't have an audience, and I've said it a few times really, but if you don't have an audience there, then there isn't a kind of heat, there isn't an oxygen, um, there isn't a communication going on. You know, it's a sort of isolated piece of art. And I totally understood that what was important about my making was that the work actually began when it was in the showing space. So audience is incredibly important to me. It doesn't, for me, it doesn't really work unless somebody is bringing their life to it, you know, or their history to it or their stories to it, you know, because I've kind of brought mine to the showing space, if you like, and I, I know it works better if if they bring theirs, because a lot of the time I am the audience for art, so I do understand it. Audience is not some other person, some other thing. Many, much of the time, artists are the audience for art. What I, the main thing I learned, and the, and the main thing I think that remains, is that I'm very aware that conversations go on when work is on display. One of the things about your paintings that really strikes me is how 
you set up your con your your compositions to present figures to an audience i think as you were as you were describing that interior space within your paintings is constructed to send our eyes to the people to the narrative action in the painting is that something you first i guess do you agree and secondly do you is that something you got from stage design yeah i think you know the, the a funny thing happens you know when you're when you're watching performance you are both watching something happen but you are also in the same space as the thing that's happening you are part of the performance, even if you don't have any lines or you don't have any dance moves or, or you're not singing the chorus, you know, you're in, you're in it. And it's important for me, I mean, especially when I'm making cutouts or your more three-dimensional pieces in which the audience walk in amongst the work, it's important, but even with the flat paintings, for people to think that they are part of the conversation. So you are observing something, but you're not observing, oh, you know, usually not observing one figure looking out in a, as, a, as a portrait. And you're not usually observing a group of people who are having their photograph taken. So it, it's not that, nor is it a stolen image. You're in the room. And you have to take some kind of, sometimes pleasurable, but some kind of responsibility for your place in the room. Uh, who are you in the room? Who would you be in the room if you weren't you in the room? So, yeah, I mean, uh, that that still is very important. It, when there are people in my paintings, I'm hoping that they're reflecting the people that are looking at paintings, but also we're all part of a world that needs to negotiate and collaborate, otherwise it doesn't work. And many of those paintings are saying that too. There are two great examples of this in, in, in the show in New York, and I think they're the two biggest paintings in the show, both about, uh, I'm doing math, nine feet wide, three architects from, from this year and six tailors from this year. In three architects, the floor in the painting extends right into the viewer's space. And in six tailors, it's even more acute. The table around which five of the six tailors are sitting comes to the very bottom of the canvas. It extends into our space. It is almost as if you are offering the objects on the table, scissors and a bolt of cloth, to to the viewer. And it, it, you talked about audience engagement and audience bringing in, if you will, a moment ago. And I think that these are, are two un unusually clear examples, which kind of prompts the obvious question, I guess. How do you think of the viewer as engaging with the figures in the painting, as watching, as being considering themselves as a part of the conversation? What is the... I mean, there's certainly a formal relationship the viewer can have, and we'll probably get to some of that a little later on. But what is the kind of personal engagement you want the viewer to have with the figures in, in paintings when you include them like that? Well, I guess we as the audience are participating. But what you have to do as an audience is decide, which is often a bit difficult in my paintings because sometimes I don't even understand, you have to decide what you think is going on. So either who are you in that painting or what would you do in that room? What have you got to offer in that room? What have they got to offer you? So in the painting with the six tailors, 
there's cloth, as you say, cotton reels, scissors, pattern, you know, the pattern for making part of the garment. If you know anything about, if people, you know, audience know anything about making, they know that there are some things missing. There are some essential ingredients that six tailors might well have that aren't there on the table. Are you bringing those? Are you bringing, uh, you know, some advice? Do you understand how you might make a difference to that painting. You know, I'm always really engaged with how how an audience looking at this work could do some tiny thing, really, really tiny thing, that differently when they leave the space than they might have done it before they arrived in the space. So of course I'm I'm talking about changing the world for the better, but you know one audience member is not expected to do that. But there might be some small thing that you could do, you know, some small thing you could make, or some small thing you could mend, or some piece of clothing you could get out and alter or give away, and and sort of participate in that. I guess that belief I have always had in the power of collaborative making and if you if you go into the architect's office it's true and in both paintings there are rather foreboding seascapes through the windows of their two sets of spaces but and when you're in the space when you're in the architect's space it is rather disconcerting the perspective is strange there's clearly a floor below the floor that they're standing on, there are these enormous windows with forbidding, forbidding sort of sea outside, and the levels are, are different. There's a power game going on, there's a power conversation going on, and you're invited to participate in that by bringing your own, your own idea of, of what you would say or what you would do if you were there. I'm I'm glad you mentioned the seas and the oceans in Windows Beyond. I I, I think we'll talk a little bit. I hope we'll we'll talk a little more about your twenty something years of painting of seas later on. There, it, it's one of my favorite little things in the work. The way you just described all that is a way that an art historian might almost describe a viewer's experience of a Pietro Longhi painting or a Hogarth painting, wherein painters of estimable estimable painters of the past. Um, created a kind of scene of manners or, or some kind of social interaction, included a narrative within it, and then plopped us into it, kind of asking us what we're seeing and how we would react and what we notice. Is one of the things that you are interested in doing is updating that kind of Europe-wide tradition and address? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've been looking a little bit at Longy, but only at particular specific paintings like the one with the rhinoceros you know that comes to my mind at the moment but certainly Hogarth since I was incredibly young and what initially was important to me about his paintings was that I could see that there were black people in Britain in 17 whatever it was and because I was brought up in an era when we were being told you know that we should be very grateful to be allowed into Britain in you know, the 1950s and given work and et cetera, et cetera. It was interesting to me to know that there had been this presence all along. And so my entrance into that world of Hogarth was was really via that kind of dialogue. But I'm also really interested in British cartoonists like 
Cruikshank and Gilray, because they too are clearly having to speak in a very succinct way about how they see things, how they see the world. And, and as you say, inviting us to either be outraged or laugh or reflect on our, on our own behavior. So yes, I mean, that kind of British painting, I think I could just about describe it as British art, has, a re- has had a really strong effect on me and influences, yeah, absolutely what I do. I'm very, yeah, I, I don't want to be obscure. I mean, one of the things that's happened to me recently in the paintings is, is that I'm not exactly sure what's happening. I think in, in paintings that I might have done some years ago, I kind of pretty was sure what, what I was depicting. But in, you know, sort of recent years, it's become even a mystery to me. And I find that slightly disconcerting, I have to say, but it's sort of brought up an interesting relationship that I now have with the work. I I sort of feel a little bit more like novelists that I've heard speak about their work, you know, over the years, who say, oh, well, I I had this character, and um, I, I knew, you know, how this character was going to sort of go through life. I did worked out the plot and I began to write other characters came in and the first character just disappeared and it was no longer about that character it was about two minor people that happened to you know get on a bus at chapter three and they took the story and that's happening to me more and more I'm not sure if it's because I'm not concentrating when I'm painting or I'm just <laughs> sort of more relaxed about not trying to, you know, boss the painting, if you like. Um, we do it, you know, me and the painting are kind of doing it together. Speaking of of this kind of open-endedness and the potential for, for a, a viewer bringing narrative to, to an open-ended painting, I think that if you were an American painter, that critics and historians would make really strong connections between your work and Horace Pippin's. He, too, created staged spaces. He, too, was informed by, by the tableaus I mentioned a moment ago, Longy and, and Hogarth, and, of course, American genre painting, too. And textiles were extremely important in his work, and they are in yours. You're not American, but I can't help but ask, is he a painter with whom you're familiar or that you found useful? Well, he, I am familiar with his work, but strangely, though that might seem strange if I haven't really done my homework properly, but I... He isn't really somebody that I kind of connected with. I mean, yeah, that's strange. You know, I I really connect, I mean, I connect with quite a lot of African-American artists, but more sort of, you know, late 20th century, like mid 20th century, we would say Romare Bearden, and then more especially Betty Saar, who were kind of maybe not doing quite that thing, but I think probably more, I, I guess the most sort of, he had had the most striking effect on me. Having when I actually saw the work for the first time, I was struck in the same way uh, as seeing Hogarth for the first time, or bizarrely seeing Bridget Riley for the first time, where I understood what an artwork could do. Very often, it's the power of what an artwork can actually physically, as well as intellectually and emotionally make you do that interests me and 
probably the fault may be that I haven't seen many Horace Pippins in the real. I've probably only looked at them in books. And because I've been teaching for a million years, I know that to see an artwork in a book, in a book is useful, but it isn't, it isn't the way to engage. So I think probably I just haven't seen enough of them in the real to actually start to understand what conversation Horace Pippin or I might have with Horace Pippin. You know, one of, the, one of the things that Pippin does in his paintings is that his interiors often have these kind of flat spaces of color as yours do, that set up the human interaction within. The, the humans are less flatly painted, whether it's what they're wearing or, or their skin tone, than the walls or tables around them. And, and Pippin does that too. And, and I always kind of guess that for the, the, the Pippin took that from 15th century Italian painting, you know, kind of the stark geometries and flat planes of color. Yeah, I'm always think of him as a kind of uh, well, not as a kind. Of, I always think of him as a as a sort of religious painter. I suppose that's maybe why I haven't connected on some levels. I don't know. Is, is that right? Would you, is that right? Do people think of him as painting religious paintings or a teeny bit? A teeny bit. He he's definitely taking some European things and trying to make them American, as probably all American painters were, or many American painters were in the early 20th century, and still do, of course. But those flat planes of color that are also in your paintings are are those kind of 15th century, early Renaissance interiors, or at least interiors in which painters are beginning to activate interiors with, you know, floating angels and kneeling Marys. Was the way color and plane was presented in those paintings important to you, or is it? Well. Probably in a sort of, yeah, not entirely at the front of my brain sort of way. I think really that flat plane of color thing, that flatness, is to do with the influence of textiles. I think I, I imagine that those flat planes of color, those pattern surfaces, are perhaps more three-dimensional than they are physically. You know, you know, a particular blue, for instance, against an orange is moving, if you know what I mean. It has a three dimension, it has a presence or a, a tangibility that perhaps I understand more than a viewer might, which is why I can see that connection. But it, I mean, of course I spent you know, my childhood in London museums, you know, with my mother, like the National Gallery, um, as well as Tate, um, from the age of sort of, you know, eight or nine or something like that. So certainly looking at that work, especially in the National Gallery, was clearly an influence, but not one in which I have in my studios those works and are kind of working with them. You know, there's an awareness of how much, I mean, I guess that the way that you can get the whole life of, well, it might be the whole life of Jesus, but sometimes the whole life of some important person into into one painting in that kind of Renaissance way, I, I, I very much like, you know, so none of that thing of having any any kind of consideration for perhaps taking on one idea at a time, but yeah, using everything, using the the trees, maybe the floor, walls to say, to say something. They're not, in my opinion, they're not there. Walls are not there just to keep the ceiling up. Do you know what I mean? But I think that's what the flat color is. You know, it's, 
it is actually supposed to be saying something as well. You mentioned textiles. Everyone who uh, has ever done a Q&A with you notes in passing that your mother was a textile designer, but no one ever seems to ask what she designed. What was her work? What did her work look like? She's still alive. She's uh, 91 now. Um, but as then, it's a long time since she, uh, she did any painting. But she would go to work every morning in a textile studio, textile design studio, which she ran. But, but it was part of a larger textile firm. So it wasn't, she didn't work in a kind of lovely sunlit studio making up patterns in a kind of dreamy kind of way. She had instructions to, so we say Marks and Spencer, which is a you know, British firm, would want a range of summer dresses, whatever, and the theme that they'd kind of decided was next year's trend would be, you know, I don't know, spring flowers or something. And she would then come up with a, a series of designs to order. She'd take them along, or, or she'd get some of her assistants as well to, to be working on that. They'd take them along to the head office, whatever, there'd be big discussions, and then they might say, yeah, we like design one, two, and three, and we'd like them in these 17 colorways. So then they'd go back, and they, so then they were, you know, painting with in their studio, right in the middle of the city of London, you know, in where Oxford Street crosses Regent Street. I mean, right in the heart of the clothing industry, if you like, of the 1960s, 70s. And then they would paint these samples, paint on paper, to order, and then they would be approved or not approved, and then millions of dresses would be made and sold on the high street from those patterns. So she, she was what, I mean, what we would probably call a jobbing textile designer, you know, that was, and she did it from nine to five for 40 years or whatever. So it was very much work. That, I mean, that's the point for me. I think I, I learned very early on that making something creative and something visual is work. It's not, I mean, it can be work, you know, it's not, it's not a pastime or a particularly a joy. It's a task. And it's a job, and it's a brilliant job, but it need, you know, you, it's not an, an idle pleasure, I suppose. I, I learned that from her. And she's an incredibly precise and meticulous woman. So, you know, early in my life, I, would, I mean, I refused ever to wear clothes with patterns on them, ever. You know, she wanted to dress me in pretty clothes, and I simply was not having it. So she and I had a battle over pattern and over my disdain for it until I was really quite a mature woman. Then I kind of started to slip into this thing that every woman listening will know happens to you where you become your mother. And I understood what you could do with pattern. Well, there are at least two bodies of work in the new museum show that prominently feature textiles, the the the, the two paintings we've already started talking about, Six Tailors and Three Architects, and, and also the, the metal handkerchief paintings. I'm, I'm guessing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong before I go too far down the road, that, that you conceived of or ended up making Six Tailors and Three Architects as, as a pair, as a set, as pendants, or something of the sort. Yes, I think so. I think that both of those paintings, in a sense, the metal handkerchiefs, of the bridge between old boat, new money, the 32 grey planks, and... Well, a three-dimensional sure. work, Paint, I'm trying to... Yeah, three-dimensional yeah. painting of 32 parts. Yeah, we'll have an image on, on manpodcast.com. 
I think sculptors would probably argue with the fact that I don't think they think it was a sculpture. But yeah, so they are those large paintings and, and the ones the the ones at the side, the the small ones that go with them, the square canvas paintings that are the sort of close up of the long shot. Or They're the, titled close up, in fact. That's the beginning of the titles, yeah. Oh uh, yes. They're a pair of paintings and I might it, had the space been different or bigger or whatever, I might have painted pastry chefs sort of working on paperwork at the minute of men who make cake and bread. So, yeah, they, they are... It's hard to say because they were made as a pair and I absolutely intended for that to happen. But when I was painting one, I, I, I wasn't really thinking about the other. You know, I was really inside the architects without ever thinking about how I would pair the tailors. You know, so in a sense, they're, they're very sort of separate kind of things going on. One's relationship to those rooms and to those people is actually quite different. But they were always intended, yes, as the, as the kind of very important part of the show. That could make my next question disastrous, but that might might also make it more fun. The design on the dress in the standing woman on the left wearing a yellow dress in Three Architects is not identical to the pattern or design on the green sweater of the man on the left in Six Tailors, but it's very close. Was that intentional? Why? Well, I often use that pattern. I have a collection, a small collection, but I have a collection of kangas, East African cloths for wearing, and it's one of the patterns in one of my favorite. So all across the work, you know, maybe in the, of the past 10 years, perhaps, you'll see that pattern reoccurring. It's a very comforting pattern to paint. And no, it wasn't intentional is the short answer to that. <laughs> it was a very intense sort of painting of her dress, um, which had to be painted and repainted several times to get kind of feeling that I wanted and then I think with the uh, the man in the green jumper I think I almost used that pattern to animate something about his body that perhaps was too static I was trying to get quite a lot of movement and leaning and leaning in in that painting and I'm using colors that I don't always used together, you know, kind of olive green and a deep purple and browns. And without it, without that pattern, there was something a little bit too passive about him. So I think I used it to activate him in a way that on the woman with the yellow dress, it really is the pattern on her dress. The other thing in the two paintings that I was wondering if is your intentionally creating a relationship between them is that the colors of the spools of thread on the table in Six Tailors are almost, but not exactly, aligned to or the same as the wall decoration in Three Architects that, that are bars of color. Is there an intentionality there, and if so, why? Um, no, there isn't really. I, but I, I think what's happened is that because Six Tailors, in Six Tailors, I, I'm using colours that I find in, in quite difficult. You know, the pale yellow background, which is actually quite a vibrant yellow, but it's on the pale side. 
and the grey and the olive green and the browns. I think the the spools of cotton are a kind of a conversation with the colours that I usually use. So because the three architects very much are absolutely the colour uh, colours I usually use, that's where the conversation is. I think it's a kind of it is a conversation across two paintings, but it's sort of a conversation of trying to sort of make some continuity, I think, between something I appear to have done by having a you know, a show at the new museum and, and suddenly shifting my palette into major works, The Six Tailors and Old Boat New Money. It, it, you know, it was rather rash. Um, so I think probably the spools of cotton are a, a, a little hello <laughs> to something that's rather safer <laughs> to do. So it was a bit of a risky business. We mentioned the ocean a few minutes ago, and I had mentioned I wanted to come back to it because you paint the ocean quite a good bit in the background or the top half, if you will, of many paintings. It's in The Captain and the Mate from 1718. It's visible through a kind of window in our entire food supply, Plan B of 99, in the Le Radour paintings of a few years ago. Um, I could keep going. You're obviously doing it intentionally. So first, why so many, why so many oceans? Well, uh, I was born in Zanzibar, a tiny island off the coast of East Africa. I left when I was four months old. When I returned, you know, many years later, I, I just spent most of the time looking out to the sea. And I, I live in, in Britain itself, an island. Back home with my mother at four months old, we went to where her mother lives, which was a seaside town in the north of England. And... I've just always had a relationship with how British painters paint the sea, how they do it, how it how it stands for a sort of stoic idea of the Britishness of us all, the heroicness of of us all, and, and what that means. And because also in amongst all that, much of the work that I've made is trying to understand how. It might feel to be taken away from the place where you belong, to be enslaved and to be used in another place where you don't belong and what that middle passage must have been like where you didn't understand even what the sea was. So very often the sea is there to kind of signify again either impending disaster or a recovery from trauma, or simply, and a lot of the patterns are, are to wonder what it would be like to paint the sea if you'd never seen paintings of the sea. All of us painting in Britain and looking at art collections in public galleries in Britain know absolutely the numerous ways that the British have tried to paint the sea and tried to sort of big up such a tiny place by doing that you know and so it's on and off and for all those reasons it's constantly in my mind and I don't swim so I don't go out on small boats in my in my new museum show uh, the sound of the sea is present in the large room and uh, I'm working with a sound artist called uh, Magda Stavaska Bevan, and she went out in a small boat for me and recorded uh, the sea. 
and the cre- and creaking boats and and all kinds of uh, sounds of the sea and rock pools and uh, to create this sense of exterior and this sense of drifting and hopefully arriving but having no idea how one might arrive so in this exhibition it you are actually even on the boat in the water and so it, it when you're then looking at the the big paintings especially there is a sense that you're in those paintings and that the water is outside the windows of the new museum. You mentioned the history of British artists painting the sea. There's also, of course, the famous John Ruskin line about how no one could paint water. It was the most difficult thing to do and how he was always looking for someone who who could faithfully represent moving water. And one of the things you do in your in the passages of your paintings in which we see the sea is not only do you not try to do that, perhaps obviously, but you are almost interested in painting seas as fingerprints. There are no, or very rarely, anything like similar or alike seas in your paintings. It's almost like for every painting you invent for yourself a different way of showing water, of of showing a sea. And so I think my question is, is the difference of representation of ocean in your paintings, from calm to tempestuous to the different ways you portray that, an intentional difference? Is that a kind of almost a challenge or a conceptual point you establish for yourself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in a, for instance, in either of those paintings, if you changed what the so-called, as you're quite right, water outside the windows looked like, you would change the entire painting. So those, both those seas have been different. Maybe there are three or four different, different seas in both those paintings, because I don't know what kind of sea I want in the painting until I've painted it. So I think I want it, I mean, I, I would say I probably almost always start with it calm and bright and then gradually overpaint and overpaint and overpaint and there becomes this different levels of sense of foreboding. I think probably only the captain and the mate is probably the only one where there is some sense of bright early spring morning about it. Um, so yes, yes, I'm trying not to refer to some of those great sea paintings, but they are in conversation with the emotional direction of the painting, of everything else in the painting. But they're kind of pushing and pulling. The seas are kind of pushing and pulling at that. Another move, if you will, that recurs in a lot of your paintings is the use of cubed or stacked cubed patterning, if you will. I'm probably describing it terribly at the edges of of many paintings. What is it from and why is it something to which you return so often? Well, it's directly linked to your last question. For me, we started to do it about painting that, that pattern about maybe 20 years ago. And I had spent two months in St. Ives, which is a small town in the south of England where many of the so-called great British modernists escaped from London to paint there. The light is quite incredible. There's sort of artists 
colony, if you like, and sculptors and painters, Barbara Hepworth, Ben Nicholson, people like that. And I spent two months there making a show for Tate St. Ives. And I was trying to paint the sea as if not only had I never seen a painting of the sea, but also didn't understand what the sea was. So I was trying to use that pattern to try to get some of the kind of changing light, the choppiness, the blockiness, the movement, the the sort of nauseousness, the the disconcertedness of large bodies of water, where you you see that there's a surface, but you know that there's an underneath, but you don't understand the underneath. And so it drifts in and out of the paintings, really, for the following 20 years. When I when I want to make reference to that not knowing and that not understanding of the difference between safety and danger. Um, that attempt to understand the surface, but that the surface has very little to do with the depths. The paint, the, the pattern is an Italian pattern, really, I would say. It's probably, possibly also a Moorish pattern. see it a lot in Venice. So I think those two, where those two worlds collided, if you like, so not, it's sort of saying a political thing as well about about the origin of that pattern, but in the main, uh, I'm using it to, to talk about some kind of, I don't know, terror, I guess, of having to engage and engage with the sea without knowing what it was, what it must have been like to be herded onto vast wooden ships. We didn't know what a ship was onto the sea for weeks and weeks and weeks. We didn't know what the sea was and you didn't know what was going to happen to you when you got off, if you ever got off. You know, where you're going to hell. You know, I don't know. People, what did people know? So it is only a pattern, but it sort of haunts many of the works in that way. Concurrently with the New Museum show, you have a body of work called Five Conversations on the High Line in, in New York City. We'll have images on manpodcast.com, but for the purpose of setting up my question, or two questions about them, they are doors from Georgian houses that have a figure painted on them. Why Georgian houses? Well, I guess in Britain, especially in the big metropolitan cities, London, Liverpool, Manchester, the most, the houses of the wealthy in the sort of high days of British wealth and power were, were you know, they were they were these Georgian houses and, and they represent, you know, Ten Downing Street as a prime example. So they're they're the sort of doors that belong on those sorts of houses, the houses of the wealthy the wealthy British if you like. Of course they're very solid, they're very well made so there are optical reasons for, for using those kinds of doors, political reasons to relate to that particular sense of Britishness. And I wanted to make paintings for the outside, for the outdoors, that would be very familiar. I could just about say that everybody who, who comes to the Highland understands what a door is and understands the myriad things you can do with a door, you know, hiding behind it, welcoming friends, saying goodbye, uh, you know, greeting people, closing yourself in, going out into the world, you know, they, they have multiple meanings. And so that was a way of 
engaging with an audience who who have many many things to look at on the highland you know fantastic other art beautiful plantings you know buildings river i mean you know so i i needed to do something that struck a kind of personal perhaps more domestic note because all around something bigger is happening and each of the women painted on on these doors has come to do what I think most of the people on the High Line have come to do, walk along, perambulate, and have conversations with their friends. So I was hoping that there would be a kind of mirroring, really. Look, there are artworks doing what we're doing. So there's a sort of, yeah, it's called Five Conversations, but I'm hoping there'll be hundreds of conversations. And I suppose perhaps also a bit of a delight in the chance encounter with people that are that you see sort of standing at the doors themselves with these women painted on them are standing on the railway lines themselves of the high line and in amongst a cluster of silver birch trees so there's something they are having they're in their own space they're having their own sort of um, encounter with each other but a lot like the paintings, really. We can join in, we can join that space by by just standing next to them or uh, look at them and, and, and try to listen to what they're saying. And it was fantastic to be able to do it. And, and it's really wonderful to have these two different but similar kinds of, kinds of my work kind of talking across the city to each other. This may be a truly awful question, but do you think of the women on the doors as being inside the house or outside the house? I think they're outside. No, it's not an awful question. I think I'm pretty, because I painted them actually on the outside side of all the doors. See, I actually, before I typed that question, you know, last week, walked walked to my apartment door to see if the two sides were the same. <laughs> <laughs> and then the front door is not the same on the on the front. Your front door even won't be the same as it is on the front and the back. Because the front door is presenting something slightly different, it, it, in a in a way, you know, it's presenting. It's more, it's just a little bit more bold. Usually, the inside of those doors is a bit more flat. So they're all painted on the front. Yeah, they're they're stepping out. Finally, you mentioned Betty Sarr a few minutes ago. Betty Sarr, former guest on this program, uh, is a particular favorite of mine. How did you come to know her work, and why why does it matter to you? Well, I came, I mean, it utterly matters to me. I think she is really the most fantastic artist, really. I mean, I'm I, I much admired here in the United States, I mean, uh, which is good, you know, I mean, really terrific. I, I think many, many people really, really appreciate what, what she's done over the years. I think I, I first came across her work by chance, I received a, a pack of, of transparencies in an academic setting that I was working in, and her one of her pieces was part of that pack. And I, I went on the pursuit of of trying to find trying to find her, trying to find her, and trying to find more about her work. But we're talking maybe you know really the early 1980s, and then somebody Whitney Chadwick, I think her name was, wrote a book about women artists that's out of print now, and her. One of her Aunt Jemima with the hand grenade was in that, and I immediately resonated with me. The whole sort of business about 
painting on found objects, searching for, in a way, things, uh, objects that kind of discarded and making them into something else, something different, resonated with me. And then as I began to discover more and more about her, I contacted her. Um, I went to her studio in Los Angeles and just had the most fantastic time looking in all her cupboards and little, little drawers full of keys and another drawer full of hearts and another drawer full of buttons. And, and we talked about, you know, what I used to call at the time gathering and reusing, which she would talk much more about uh, finding these objects in what, what she called and what your American audience would call swap meets. But I, I had no idea what a swap meet was. But that idea of exchanging, taking one object to a, a gathering and then exchanging it for another object that you do that you do want, you take something that you don't want and get something that you do want, was totally fascinating to me. And I started to write a lot about her work in relation to quilts and in relation to found objects. I'm totally fascinated by that very uh, again. I think she started out being very interested in textiles and fabric, but then took a very overtly political line, you know, in the in the late uh, mid to late 60s. And then I think as she thought, maybe that whole situation didn't need quite so much push anymore, moved towards a much more sort of spiritual, magical, I don't know, mysterious way of working. And then, you know, in her latter years, again, felt no, that the politics were not solved. You know, we hadn't actually change the world and again have that kind of fantastic energy to take on you know a, a political you know a huge political thread that, that that runs through her work i just think 91 92 now i just think she's a woman of immense energy and and somebody who you know, transfer that energy to her daughter, Alison, and, and to her other daughters too. And yeah, she's very supportive, you know, a very supportive artist, supportive of other artists, of of us in, in Britain. She was always interested in what we were doing and happy to, to, to talk and, and exchange ideas and explain where things had come from, you know, and, and, and remember, you know, you know, childhood looking at the Watts Towers being built and I don't know, she's just, I just love her, <laughs> you know, she's just utterly fantastic. And I think everyone should know about her. I was really happy when um, the curators of uh, Soul of a Nation that opened at Tate Modern, it was really great for European audiences to sort of, uh, you know, encounter this work for the first time in a great context. I should I should note that Betty Sarr is, is probably the most important American artist of the 20th century, never to have received the, the retrospective treatment, and she hasn't had a, a New York Museum show in 30-something years, and, and none of the major L.A. museums has shown her work monographically in a similar period of time. It's, it's an outrage. But, and in some ways, because of Soul of a Nation, as you mentioned, Sarr's work is better known and more honored in in London. Um, if my memory is correct, the only artist in the London presentation of Soul of a Nation to receive an entire gallery to him or herself was Betty Sarr. Yeah, that's right. And when you walked into that room, the sensation was... I mean, I, as I say, I'm a great fan, but the sensation of the artworks themselves are so beautifully presented, and the power in that room was absolutely palpable. 
it was it was a marvelously curated show but her her presentation was just wonderful Lubaina Hemed thank you very much thank you very much indeed it's been a pleasure Peter Paul Rubens is recognized as one of the most celebrated painters of all time, but his international acclaim was far from an assured outcome. Witness his rise to the highest ranks of European painters in Early Rubens, on view now at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Focusing on what is arguably Rubens' most innovative period of production from 1608 until about 1620, the exhibition showcases almost 50 works, including large-scale paintings never before seen in the U.S., Don't miss your chance to see Early Rubens at the Legion of Honor before it closes on September 8th. Visit legionofhonor.org for details. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices, 1950s to Now, the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12th, 2020, at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu voices. Experience Sheila Hicks Sees Weave Space on view at the Nasher Sculpture Center through August 18th. This site-specific fiber installation of the American-born, Paris-based artist transforms the Nasher Sculpture Center and galleries with her use of supple and pliable materials. With a career spanning more than six decades, Hicks continues to push perceptions of art beyond traditional associations and uses fiber to create sculptures and objects that give material form to color. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Sheila Pepe, discussing work of hers on view, 19 works in all, in fact, in queer abstraction at the Des Moines Art Center. Pepe's work often brings craft techniques to sculpture and installation, expanding the possibilities of both technique and media. A recent mid-career survey of Pepe's work, titled Hot Mess Formalism, originated at the Phoenix Museum of Art before traveling to the Everson in Syracuse, the Bemis Center in Omaha, and to the De Cordova in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Queer Abstraction is on view in Des Moines through September 8th. It was curated by Jared Ledesma. The fine catalog was published by the museum, but so far as I can tell is not yet available online. When that changes, we'll have a link to it at manpodcast.com. A number of previous Man Podcast guests are included in the show, including Mark Bradford, who's been on twice, Harmony Hammond, and Carrie Moyer. Sheila Pepe, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks. It's really great being here. Over the last quarter century, you have made over 100 votive moderns sculptures. What are they and what started them? They began as part of a, a work called the Doppelganger series or related things with fixed and ambiguous pictures. So they, they were object made for itself, cobbled together in you know, in the 90s, my attention span was very short. So it was like 10 minute, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, maybe save the thing in a box for a year, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. So accumulation over time. And then that object would be used to cast 
a shadow with a little battery-operated light. And then in that shadow, I would draw the first image I saw without language. So, I, I, you know, there would be a, an immediately seen image in the shadow and drawn before I could say what it was. And at a certain point, that work started getting taken apart. Drawings got made alongside of the installation work, the doppelganger installation work, and the objects started getting pulled out of it out of the operation to create yet another pot of category of work being made in the studio. And I, I like them because when I first started, I liked them very much because they were the size of the sculpture that I knew as a child, which was mostly small saints and Madonnas and sacred hearts of Jesus and infants of Prague, because that's the sculpture that was in my childhood home. And so I just continued making them. And after a while, they spawned other subsets, like a series of work called Different Things, which is a, a way to physically and non-verbally organize a family resemblance of objects. And then after a while, as time went on, and I began doing more and more installation work with crocheted with fiber, they just kept going in the studio to you know, entertain me or there was just a, there are things that go on in the studio that just didn't see the life day for a while. So that's a kind of evolution. They're all a pursuit of what, I mean, in my head, that's just an open series that someday I will be able to map out every different kind of thing that might be considered a sculpture at that size. So it's kind of home votive, kind of talisman, a kind of art, something in the church of art, you know, which is where my Catholicism, I would say, returned to because, you know, Roman Catholics are really Romans who like to have house saints or house gods. So that's how I see these objects ongoing. In a lot of the votive moderns and in, in, in some of the different things or the thing works, if you will, there are references to the body. Two two questions about that. One, is that like a rule you have or, or, or you know, kind of a studio rule? And two, how much of that is a response to the body in Catholic painting and sculpture? Some of the work is, is the body in action. So there are pieces of clay that are squished. And I mean, to be honest, when I, st when I was doing that work, I was really trying to inhabit the different modalities of sculpture that really came to be in the during the 20th century, because I don't think this kind of sculpture existed as sculpture before the 20th century. I mean, I think sculpture as we know it is really mostly a mid to late 20th century phenomenon. You know, it's, it sits on your, you know, I think of like Picasso's absinthe glass, one of them, or like the one in the modern, you know, and that's made by a painter. So there's a kind of breaking the decorative arts or the religious into the modern. I, I'm trying to understand that, what that evolution is on one hand. So those works are all really seen within the possibilities of language of sculpture. So that done, you know, that's where it comes from. Looking back, you know, some of it can only exist either in a kid's playroom or in sculpture, 20th century sculpture, there's like squish art, you know, that's okay. 
And then other things are like tools, I think of them, like tools. Some of them are like little tiny statuary. Some of them are like little vessels. So they're closer to the craft sphere that I kind of came out of in, in ceramics. So there is a kind of, yeah, I'm sure if it looks like a figure, there's figure force coming through. I set up, I think about things and I learn about new things and I look at things and then I try to absorb them intellectually. And then when I go to the studio, I try to work as automatically as possible. I just have to trust that I'm learning and transferring things the way I did 30 years ago when I was first acknowledging that that could happen. Like, you know, that first surprise where it's like, oh my God, that looks like something I looked like that at last week. And, and that could be, as a young artist, really great news or really terrible news. So you learn to accept or reject what it is you've automatically kind of steered into the work from what you're feeding on. I wanted to raise a specific object against which we could talk about these things. I love oversewn object with different things underneath from 2015. It's about the size of a piece of paper and it engages everything we've been discussing for the last five minutes. It appears to have, you know, air quotes, outstretched arms as if a figure was on a crucifix. It has, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but it has a bus line sort of, only it's definitely not breasts. You know, it's a, a, a querying of a, of a crucified image. It has two sewn red highlights, if you will, at the top that both kind of recall the, the, the classic art historical reference to cardinals and cardinal hats. But yeah, it's an object that has everything we're talking about in it and, and that queers it and toys with it. And, and, and I, I, I guess my question is how many of these things that I'm finding in it were, were conscious? Few. You know, it's afterwards I'm like, oh, wow, that's a good one. Like it's got all these parts. Like I can say like, oh, yeah, that one's more figurative than the other words. And that one, like it's got a really stick-like booty and like I can see the figure in it and then the it's like is that a head or is that I'm not sure what that is you know like the boobs ended up on the head or like and then I'm like oh, okay don't see too much kind of squint and go back to the abstraction because it'll be hard for you to s stop seeing it that way right yeah, it could also, if I could just make one other reference, think of all those paintings of, who is it, St. Lawrence returning the, the glories, the expensive silverware of the church to, to the people and to the poor. And you, you, in all of those paintings, I think it's Lawrence, is returning you know, silver cups and silver goblets. And there's also that form with, here. When you refer to the booty, I see like you know, kind of a, a, a pouring cup. Yes. So what's happening is I'm thinking very mechanically like I've got stuff underneath there that's making I'm a formalist like I just transfer everything into formal terms I'm attaching things underneath and the first construction underneath there was was potentially the work and I was really happy with the shapes but unhappy with everything else so I just decided to cover it and then it's about making a form with a covering that I can't predict because I'm just not going to imagine that far in my head. I'm just going to stay in my body and my hands and observe what I'm doing and, and doing, do it as quickly and uh, 
or not as quickly, but as efficiently and well enough. It's kind of the Winnicott approach to craft, which is good enough. My test is, does it stay together? Fine. And then finish through like, oh, I think I need something red up here. Like that kind of thing. And then sit back and name it. The titles are very important to me. Sometimes they're associative. Sometimes they name how they operate as a set of things, like the thing group sometimes. Let me just jump in to provide a couple titles for for listeners. I'm going to read a couple off that are in queer abstraction. Gray thing with dangly bit on chain. We're talking about oversewn object with different things underneath. There's women are from Mars with crocheted thing. There is thing, parentheses, oil can. So, yeah, that's, there's a few. <laughs> so, Thing Oil Can is, is an older piece. 1999. And uh, the oil can's just in there for me to... <laughs> it's like, which thing is that? Oh, it's the oil can thing. This is just a way of keeping the parts apart from each other, you know, the works apart from each other. And it's a more utilitarian approach to naming things. And as much as possible keep the language on the outside of the work or as a as a as a partner of the object of the mage so we've been talking about oversewn object with different things underneath and of course the first word in that title is oversewn you have been making works out of or that include textiles for 30 years in fact you were included in Janelle Porter's great great fiber show from you know about half a decade ago where does that interest in textiles come from? Certainly it's a feminist material in terms of uh, the birth of feminist art in the 70s. But given how much Catholicism is in your work, I'm tempted to find some Catholicism in it too. I think the thing to find there is the, is the Italian-American training of a girl child. You learn how to sew. They try to teach you how to sew, how to cook, how to bake, how to, all that stuff. And I spend a lot of time at home with mom and then with my grandmother, my grandma Peppy, my father's mother, when she would stay with us. And my older siblings were out of the house already. And I was curious about how these things were done. And so, you know, about between seven and nine, I learned a lot of how to do things and then was expected to continue. And there was definitely a break in that, (laughs) a break and a disavowal of that education but it came back you know once you leave art school you've acquired some technical understanding some craft understanding and and craft for me it's like it doesn't matter if it's painting or woodworking or ceramics or but then you bring with you all of the other skills that you've acquired in your in your lifetime and when you don't have any money and you want to make stuff sewing Sewing is very convenient. And there was a moment when I just thought, yeah, I'm going to bring everything. It's got to be, you know, completely multivalent in terms of culture and class and signifying inside of the art world or outside the art world. Like, I love plaster. And it's a weird material because it doesn't really have its own utilitarian. I mean, like it has a utilitarian identity, but it's contingent on other things. You don't really leave it by itself. It's like making things out of unfired clay, which was also in my past. 
And, and sculptors often used plaster as like a maquette material before getting to the real thing, you know. Yeah, before it got pointed up to something else or mold got made for an investment. So it's, it's, always, the, it's always the helper material. It's a little bottom. Well, I'm going to jump in there because I'm glad you brought up plaster and the context you just provided is extra good to raise a piece called Hard and Soft Thing 2 from 94 2016 um, 1990 you, you you made the work in 1994 and if i understand the credit line um, you reupholstered it three years ago it's a kind of a classic feminist work it refers to male form with evident feminist materials what about putting plaster and textile together which you've done a good bit works when i want to make a a kind of complex object and start with one part and leave it kind of literally have a valence open, right? It's a beautiful parallel to having share paired electrons. Like, you know, I'm waiting for the other electron to attach, but it's in peppy time, not in like science time. So I need to stick something in there. And a lot of times it's a, you know, piece of plastic or piece of something, piece of, and for a while, I've just like, oh, I've got this piece of fabric over here. I'll just stick that in. And I can attach anything to the fabric. It's just very satisfying. You just put your finger in a piece of fat, you know, like, like as if it's a little glove and stick it in there and let everything seep around it. And you know you're good. That's going to stay there. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you don't have it perfectly in there and the top chips off and you have to throw it out or reuse it some other way. But it just seemed right. And that plaster is an odd plaster because it's filled with homosote, so it's extremely light. I'm sorry, it's filled with what? Homosote. It's a kind of really light plaster. So it's the dangly bit, the long limb that comes out of it. And, you know, I look at it and I think of it as like part of an arm or it's like a shoulder or something. I get that a lot of the things that look phallic to other people read as phallic to most people, but they often don't to me this one had to <laughs> no no actually it didn't it was like oh that could be like a shoulder and I could put a hand at the end of it and then I stopped and did put the hand on <laughs> I know this is my world I don't see many phalluses in my world I just don't you know on occasion okay I get it I I can I can flip the lens and see all the phalluses but some more than others I would say so yeah it's for a while, it it did not fall off the edge. I think that's the other part. For a while, I just looked at it as something that was laid out on the tabletop as being one side is hard and the other side is soft. So then it evolved into like, yeah, it looks really cool when you dangle it off the edge. Yeah, it's installed on a kind of mini mini shelf. This is the second piece we've discussed in which a, a material has been covered with textile, that there is something in the inner and there is something in the outer and they, they are different things. I think about five years ago, you filmed an artist's project segment for, for the Met, for the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Artist Project. We'll drop that YouTube clip into the show page on, on manpodcast.com. And instead of choosing a single artwork, pretty much everyone else did you chose the entire arms and armor gallery you know which is a place where again you have this it's the outer shell that is the Im- Im- important thing that, that that somebody sees and, and that indeed conceptually in terms of what armor is matters 
what is the relationship between your use of textile on the outside of objects you make out of ceramic or plaster or whatever and your like or love of that gallery? First of all, there was a time when I liked everything hot. When I was like in ceramics and I spent a lot of time in the kiln shed firing all kinds of kilns. I, I was very I was more interested in clay bodies and firing than glaze when I was a student. And then right next door to that place was the glass shop. And so while I was waiting for a kiln to fire off, somebody would grab me to hold a punty or something. And then I went to Haystack and studied pattern welded steel with a man named Daryl Meyer. And I loved it. I loved hot things and pounding away at them, especially that summer, because I was really just coming out as a lesbian, and I had been politicized in a way that was shocking to me. Mind you, I I came up in a Catholic, Italian Catholic household, second generation, North Jersey, very insulated. I didn't even know there was such a thing as lesbians. I knew that they were gay men. I actually even remember the Stonewell riots on TV and my mother getting apoplectic not for the gays, but against the gays. But it wasn't until much later in my life that I realized that there was such a thing called a lesbian, and then everything shot into in, into shape. Like, I was like, oh, I get it, I, everything. Uh, this is what all this is, and I came out gangbusters and very angry. So pounding on metal was really good for me. And Daryl was a really sweet teacher who was supportive and just like no attitude about anything. Just you want to pound on the metal? Great. We're welcome. You're welcome here. So I love that stuff. It's like really hard to do. The objects, the forms are amazing. The machining, the just the entire process is really lovely and luxurious and requires a tremendous amount of patience, which I admire originally drawn to that, but originally drawn to an idea that you could be inside of it and that it was a powerful place. And, you know, my childhood was filled with sword in the stone and cops and robbers and wild west. I had my own six shooter, which my mother had no trouble with for some reason. I really don't know why. She thought it was fun that you were playing, you know, she even, she even put the shoelace through the bottom of my holster so my, my holster wouldn't flip up when I pulled my six-shooter out. So, yeah, that was, a, those, that was a part of my fantasy life as well. And so it's something, it's a place that I grew up with as a kid, as an adolescent, and then later as a dyke, realizing, like, I want a metaphorical codpiece, damn it. I don't really want the codpiece, but I want that. You know, I, I even made some ceramic, these little ceramic army men with big cod pieces and really large feet when I was in school. I, it was just a great thing. It's like, who wouldn't want a kind of cod piece? I've even made a video where I strapped an old handicam on and put a blue dress on and bounced around on the, on the bed. I mean, I, I love the metaphorical cod piece. And that's as far as it goes, because the parts I have there, I also really adore, and I wouldn't trade them for for anything. So metaphor is really powerful. And I think, you know, art helps you learn that that's what this stuff could be. You just 
it's a it's something for your mind. It's an expression of something. And and my guess, you know, I haven't studied the the work that I love there, the arms and armor, truly. But my sense is that codpiece is is ornamental or representative in a way that's not utilitarian for the man inside of that armor. I don't think he's filling that thing while he's fighting, you know, <laughs> or jousting or something. I think, you know, it's, it's their feathers or baubles. A major contribution of feminism to the discourse within art is the breaking down of the grid. You know, there, there's a whole show to be done of hundreds of objects called Queering the Grid. And you have participated in this uh, in lots of ways. Many of your hanging textile pieces, room-sized textile pieces, queer and break down the grid, those being, in, in the case of some of those works, two different things. You made a video, I don't know the year, that references your Italian-American present and past in which you stack, you rolled and stacked meatballs in a grid. There's a piece in Queer Abstraction in Des Moines called Urban Thing X, which is has, has a grid referencing or, or, or grid-ish, partially still gridded armature that is covered by sewn fabric. When and why did you become interested in, in doing your thing to the grid? Well, that meatball video is originally part of a larger installation, but still very, very much stands on its own. And I think that's like 95 or 96. That video was me wanting to make a painting, and I knew that good modern paintings or grid paintings... So, yeah, I wanted to mess a lot of, you know, I wanted to inhabit that space by the best means I could. I, I can't, I can recognize color, I can find color, but I can't make it. So video was my painting medium for a while, just because you could, you could find cool color and then you could mess with the, the camera, which, you know, this is still tape we're talking about in such a way that you could change the color as time elapses. So, yeah, that was wanting to mess the grid up, but also inhabit it. You know, I mean, I think that's what queering means now. I mean, you want to you want to be in it, but you I only want to be in it in the way that I can be in it because I embrace the idea of queer, not just as a woman or as a lesbian, but as a queer kid, like when queer meant the kid that stays in at recess and draws instead of going out and playing kickball, like the one with interests other than the mainstream. So all of that is inevitably for somebody of my age is part of what queer means. The other work and a bunch of other works that are drawn or relate to, it's the urban landscape. It's the New York's landscape. That is the real, you know, it's coming home from Boston and being immersed in the grid that made New York modernism and that, you know, made modernism sort of industrial and gave it the requirement that it look like New York and being there again. And so it's also knowing, you know, my grandparents all came over well, my, grand, my mother's mother was just barely born here in New Jersey, and the, all of the other grandparents came through Ellis Island, and I felt like an amazing homecoming. I could 
owned this place in a way that Boston never provided as an urban location. So, yeah, it was just trying to be there in a way and trying to really learn the kind of syncopation of a grid that became later 20th century abstraction. It's dealing with the problematics of being home and feeling good in a place that it's really the source of a lot of pain and and consternation and even now a place that I have a real love-hate relationship with. But it's, I think, what it means to be an American artist and dealing with what you come from and inevitably queering it because that's the only, literally that's the only way I could do it. I, I don't have, I feel like I don't have many other technical and aesthetic capabilities other than making things this way. I'm not interested in learning any more than this. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's what it is. I love it. Sheila Peppy, thanks so much. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.